Well, again, good morning. You know, we are in the last week of our series we're referring to as The Story, Stranger Things, and that means it's the last time we get to watch that really cool video. All of us 80 kids are screaming on the inside, like, that was awesome! At least that's how this 80s kid feels. Um, But it is the last week of our series. Um, The good news is today is just a great story as well. Um, In this series, we've been taking a look at just the stranger stories in Scripture and trying to figure out what in the world is going on with them. And one of the things we've discovered is that even in these strange moments in Scripture, God seems to have something for us, even there. And uh, we've been using the book, the story, as kind of providing a framework for us as we work through these strange stories. And the story, what it does is it gives you three different unique vantage points of kind of looking at the scriptures. And so I'll be moving around on the platform like I have been every week, uh, but just as a little primer, Uh, When I'm standing over here, this is called the lower story. And this is when we're approaching the story through the lens of the people actually in the story. Like, what's going on on the ground? I'll be over there when we talk about that. There is this upper story area. This is where the stairs are. And in that moment, we will be looking at the story from God's vantage point, from his perspective as he sees what's going on in the story. And often when we're up there, we learn a couple things about God along the way. And then finally... When I get to sit in this ridiculously comfortable chair, because it is, um, this is our story. And our story is what happens when the scriptures and then our own lives, they intersect. What happens there? And that's what we will be talking about as we sit in that comfy chair. So the story, Stranger Things. Uh, In the biblical story, in our story, God is at work in the unexpected things of Life. And throughout the series, we have been going through um, a memory verse, really, a series verse. It's Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. Let me just read it to you one more time. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Sometimes God's plans look different from our own, and it may even seem strange, and that's because God's vantage is different from our own. God is God, and we are not, and he sees things that we simply do not. But even in the midst of that, in this series, as we've seen, as we enter these Stranger Things stories, God seems to reveal some really amazing, transformative, life-changing stuff, even in those stories. So, on to our final Stranger Things story. Um, It's the story of Jesus and demons and pigs and exorcisms. Who is excited this morning? Um, and uh, that's from Luke 8, 26 through 39. Um, Bill De Bruin has graciously agreed to read scripture for us. What we do here is we stand. So if, you, if you're able, please stand. Uh, face the center of the room. We do that to uh, really, we believe that God's scripture is the story of our entire lives and we give it the most authority and honor. So go ahead, Bill, when you're ready. They sailed to the region of the of Gerizines, which is across from the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, 
What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerizines asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Thank you, Bill. You may be seated. It's truly a strange story. It's the story of a possessed man, and, and he's not possessed by just one demon, but apparently he's possessed by many, many demons. And, and what's crazy is somehow these demons have the ability to give this man super strength. It like really turns him into the Incredible Hulk or something. And he has the ability to actually break metal chains just with his fist and his muscle. It's quite amazing. And, and the, at one point, the demons are talking to Jesus, and Jesus kind of tells them to skedat, and they realize that Jesus is who he is. And so the demons ask if they can go into some pigs, and Jesus lets them, and then they head off, and the man is freed. It's quite fascinating. And then the weird part starts to happen, right? The weird part is it's an act of mercy that Jesus gives the demons. Just think about that for a second. Jesus talking to demons it almost seems like he feels bad for him. He's like, yeah, you guys can go hang out with the pigs. Go ahead. That's fine. It's good for you. That's surprising. I would expect Jesus to do something perhaps differently. And then the pigs, they suddenly freak out and they beeline it down a cliff and they fall into the Sea of Galilee and then they are drowned. And then we get to the truly interesting part of the story because we would expect the town people would come out and they would find this guy that was possessed by demons to no longer be possessed and he was freed and he's not going to hassle people and, and, and kind of break things and create chaos and he's healed, he's healed. And so the, the town people come out and you expect, yay, go Jesus, but you don't get that. Instead of cheering, Jesus gets jeering and they say, can you please leave? We're scared now. And then he gets in the boat and he leaves. It's really a strange 
story. And you know, one of the things we've learned in this series is even in these stories, there's often a lot more going on. And this story is especially true. And I want to start with a question for all of us. Think about your life. What in your life has the most control over you? Have you ever thought about that? What in your life has the most control over you? And as you think through, maybe it's, is it your job? Does your job have the most control over your kids? Um, spouse? Is it your iPhone? Could be. Video game? School? Is it your health? What in your life has the most control over you? Uh, for us today, that's actually a pretty tough question to answer because we feel pulled in so many different directions all the time. Our time is spent on all sorts of different things. What's interesting is that if you were a Jewish person living in Jesus' day, you could answer that question very, very easily. Let me, let me walk over here to the lower story. If you were a Jew in Jesus' day, and someone asked them, so what's the thing that kind of controls your life the most? Their answer, in my, this is my guess, their answer would all be the same. It would be a picture of this guy. Anyone know who this is? I heard whispers, that's it. Um, this is Tiberius Caesar, Divi, Augusti, Phileas, Augustus. Now I imagine this guy if he was in school and he got in trouble and he had to write lines, that would be a bummer because that's a super long name. Tiberius, Caesar, Divi, Augusti, Phileas, Augustus. Tiberius was the emperor of Rome. And the Roman Empire at this day, if you didn't know, was very, very powerful. It was really at its peak. It controlled everything. It had all the power in the universe. And a Jewish person would point to this guy and say, this is the guy that has the most control over my life. And if you were a Jew in Jesus' day, you weren't a big fan of that notion. Not a big a fan of that happening. The Roman Empire was not exactly a positive thing in a Jewish person's Life. The Roman Empire as a Jew was seen as an occupying force. They had control over something, Israel, and they had no business having control over it. And the Jewish people resented that deeply. And, they've, and, the, and the Jewish people felt that Roman people and Roman society and Roman culture was just all bad. It was unjust. It was unclean, and the worst of all is it felt like they purposely trampled on all of God's laws. It drove them nuts. The Jews had an affectionate name for these people, this culture. They would call them pagans. Now, if you've ever been called a pagan, it probably isn't very nice. It wasn't nice back then either. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus did most of his ministry in a place called the Galilee. And let me just pop up a map here. The, this is the, a, a nice map of the Galilee. I didn't draw it, so you can critique somebody else. But this is a map of the Galilee. And if you look to the top of the map, you'll see a town called Capernaum. It is really in that region that Jesus does the majority of his ministry. But what's interesting about our story today is the story was not there. Instead, the story 
was in on the right map. You can see there's a, a word called Gergasa, if you can read that. That is where this story happens. And that matters because Gergasa was a part of the Decapolis, or it means the ten cities. And the ten cities, if you were a Jewish person, was basically textbook what it meant to be Roman. It was all bad in every single way. They didn't worship the God of Abraham. They worshiped the emperor. They worshiped the Roman Empire itself. They were, it was a bad place full of pagans. And if you were a Jew, you didn't even want to go to the Decapolis. Why would you go there and risk touching a pagan and making yourself unclean? So they would avoid it at all costs. And then there's Jesus. Guess where Jesus goes? The Decapolis. That's interesting. And the disciples follow Jesus with all of their thoughts about how much they can't stand the Decapolis into the Decapolis, and they follow Jesus there. And it probably created a stark image for the disciples. See, Jesus, they knew, was the Messiah right? He was God's chosen one. He had God's power on his side. He was going to be the one that really saves the world. It was God's power in Jesus. <clears throat> but they also knew that the Decapolis was really the definition of the Roman powers or the Roman uh, empire's land. And what happens when God in Jesus, who is a force and a power, and the Roman Empire, which is a force and a power, what happens when they meet? It's like a good old-fashioned story of what every young boy argues about with his friend, right? My dad's muscles are bigger than your dad's muscles, right? No one's had that argument here. I have. Um, anyway, so they're there, and they're asking this question. And, and really, at the end of the day, well, who gets to be more powerful here? Is it Rome or is it God that's more powerful here? At the end of the day, who is the king of this world? Is it, is it Caesar? Or, or is it Jesus? And I imagine the disciples wrestled with that question because their lived reality was that Rome was the true power of the world. And I'd like to just hit pause just one second before we really dive into the story, I think it's a question we need to consider. You know, our life doesn't look all that different from Rome these days, does it? I don't know about you, but sometimes when I turn on the news or I look outside even, I look out there and it makes me ask the question, is God really a power here today? Still, it, is God powerful enough? Um, in Roman culture, the Roman culture was filled with like the three bad eyes. Immorality, idolatry, injustice. And it seems to me when I look out there, it feels a little bit the same. Does anyone feel that? You look out there and you wonder, is God truly a power in our world today, does it sometimes feel like to you that CEOs and politicians have more sway in our world than God does? 
Does anyone ever feel that way? Because that is exactly the way the disciples felt. Is God really a force here with the Roman Empire and all of its power? Is that, is God really powerful enough here? Let me head back to the lower story. So what the story highlights is, is really the power of God and just how it works and how God's power interacts in this world. And, and the first point we can draw out of this is in the story, Jesus' power is different. Jesus' power is different from the rest of the world. It's different from the Roman Empire. In the time of Jesus, if you or I were to be possessed, right? We were going to be this possessed guy like in the story. And we were filled with demons. We would be considered the least valuable, the lowest in society. Because in the Roman world, value was about how much work or contribution you could give. The more talented you were, and the more you built your business or your trade or whatever it was, it was seen that you were inherently more valuable then. And so if you were a demon-possessed person, like the guy in our story, he was crazy, he was possessed, he was living among the tombs in the graveyard, and the question is, well one, he doesn't have any value, but two, what do you do with a person like that in this world that can't contribute, that creates more chaos than peace? And Rome had a solution for that with its power. What you do is you take someone like that and you remove them from society. You remove them, you hide them from society, they go somewhere else. Because in Rome's eyes, the number one thing that was important was the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and maintaining that peace at any cost at all. Rome used its power to keep the peace. It's what it did. To keep the peace of Rome, to maintain the status quo, to ensure that everyone was still producing exactly as they're supposed to. And so in order to keep the peace, the demon-possessed man had to be dealt with. And that meant they did two things. Chain him up, throw him in prison, and then assign guards to watch over him just to make sure. In other words, in Rome, if someone was in bondage, to something like demon possession or a disease or whatever else it may have been, an addiction. Rome's solution to fix the problem was to put that person in more bondage out of the way. Lock them up away from society. And Rome didn't care about one's bondage, only maintaining the peace. Rome, by the way, big metaphor for our world today, doesn't care about yours or my demons. Doesn't care. And then there's Jesus. And, and Jesus steps off the boat and he is completely different from Rome. Jesus uses his power not to keep the peace, but to create peace in this man's life, to make more peace, not to maintain the status quo. And it makes me wonder, do we have demons in our lives? Do you and I? 
Now, I'm not talking about aberrations or something like that. But really, what is a demon? A demon is something that takes over your life, it controls you, and it makes you do whatever it wants to do, right? Do we have demons in our own lives? You know those things, right? It's the constant battle that that we have on repeats, right? We know those things. And sometimes it feels like we might be winning the battle, and then oftentimes it feels like we're losing this battle against this demon, this, this thing, this addiction, whatever it may be. And we fight this thing over and over and over again. And sometimes it just feels hopeless because we feel powerless to do anything about it, right? I'm not going to do a raise of hands. How many of us have struggled with porn? And it's just got a grip on us. How many of us have struggled with that one too many drinks at the end of the night? Every single night. I got to have that extra drink just to get me to bed, right? That's the excuse we give. But to give it up is, is not going to happen. Right? What about our, our obsession with, with buying? Perhaps that's one of us this morning. Amazon Prime is like our favorites on our website and we just go and it's just one click and you can buy it, it's so convenient, it's great. And we just can't stop buying and buying and buying and it seems to control our checking account. We just don't even know what to do. And, and with these struggles, which I think we can call demons, comes shame sometimes, right? We don't talk about these things. We feel ashamed of our struggles, our, our demons, our, our addictions. So, so we keep them to ourselves. Because if anyone were to find out about whatever our problem is, right, what would happen? We know what would happen. We'd be rejected. We'd be thrown out to the curb. We'd be ostracized, perhaps even publicly. We can't risk that. We'd be labeled. We'd have a label for us for the rest of our lives as, as a loser or whatever it may be. In some ways, the shackles in the guard in our story the shame is really ours, our shackles, and our guards. And then there's Jesus in our story. And, and Jesus steps off the boat. And what Jesus does to the demon-possessed man is really shocking in his day. He chooses to come face to face with him. He's not meaningless. He's not invaluable. He is a person and he has great value. And Jesus comes face to face with him. He doesn't ignore him and he will not ignore you. He doesn't see you as worthless, as a lost cause. And whatever your demons may be. And instead he comes face to face with this man and with us. And he gets the demons out. And he creates peace in our life, in our world. The Jesus of the Bible, that's what he's all about with his power. He's not like Rome. He doesn't just want to push you to the curb. He wants to create peace when there might not be any. What would it look like if you and I took that seriously and, and we went to Jesus and said, here I am, 
here's my demons, here's my struggles, here's my addictions, and we just handed it over to him. What would that look like? Let me keep moving. Because Jesus' power is very, very, uh, it's kind of all over the place in this passage. Jesus' power is, is different, sure, but Jesus' power is also dynamic in this, in this story. It's very dynamic. The story of the demon-possessed man is a story of Jesus showing his involvement in the world in not just one way, but in two different ways. Jesus uses his power personally, individually, and he deals with the demon-possessed man, and he gets the demons out, and he frees them. But Jesus also uses his power really corporately. He uses it cosmically on a very large level. It's the whole world Jesus uses his power for. Now, I don't know what you believe about demons, but this is what we're talking about this morning. It's exciting. I don't know what you think about demons, but they're in the Bible, and there's a point in our lives where we just have to say, it's in the Bible, we have to deal with it. We're gonna have to figure this thing out. Jesus' interaction with demons really provides us the scope of what his power really looks like. Because when Jesus is around, demons can't be. It's why the demons kind of freak out whenever Jesus steps onto the shore and they're like, what are you going to do? Don't throw me down there. Like, can you do something? Can we go into the pigs? Can we do anything else? And demons, what do they represent? Chaos and sin and death and control. And when Jesus is around, chaos and sin and death and control cannot be around. Let me walk up to the upper story a second. Now I want to just make this very clear. Demons and sin and death and chaos and Satan, and you can continue the list if you want to, they are not competitive with God's power. They're not. You know, a lot of us believe that there is some kind of like celestial battle going on, right? We believe that there's some kind of good versus evil battle going on in the world. There's, there's angels versus demons. There's, there's God versus Satan. Maybe you have different language for that. And we often think that it's a competitive battle, right? That, that at least God and Satan must be reasonably matched because this is the way the world is. So it must be some pretty intense battle. But this story gives us a glimpse into what this battle actually looks like. The demons know immediately who Jesus is without him, without him even saying his name. And they assume his great power and they know that Jesus can do whatever he wants with them. Folks, the battle between good and evil, the thing that we believe about that, it's not even a close battle. God is the firm ruler of this world and can do whatever he wants to in this world. God is in control. God, uh, even the demons or Satan or the powers and principalities is what the Bible sometimes says. They are nothing compared to God. Yes, there is chaos. Yes, there's disease and there's abuse and there's death and there's famine and bankruptcy and divorce there's conflict and it makes us wonder sometimes but the bible over and over and over again repeats god is still in control even when we just don't see it 
And God, especially in Jesus, has the, has the power to defeat all other powers. All of it. Jesus' power defeats all other powers powers. And this is abundantly clear in the story of the demon-possessed man. God's power is greater than our power. God's power is greater than Rome's power. God's power is greater than culture's power. You know, it's interesting uh, what name the demon gives um, his name to Jesus. Jesus says, what's your name? And the demon says, my name's Legion, which I mean, every single horror movie I've ever seen, the demon's always legion. So that's all I can think of. But legion doesn't actually mean demon's name. It's, it, it, there's more going on here. Legion is actually the largest unit of the Roman army. Like that's what it was, a legion. It's like two to 8,000 soldiers. And they said, we're a legion. Check out this compare and contrast. We have this one guy in the story. He's demon-possessed, right? And Rome doesn't know what to do with him. So, you know, they try to take care of him. They try to bond him. They try to put handcuffs on him. They try to put guards over him. And he keeps getting free and running off into the hills and going crazy into solitary places. And then Jesus comes to this man, one guy. When Rome had an entire army of legions to deal with this guy and couldn't control him, Jesus comes on the scene as one man and this guy says, I'm a whole legion of demons. You don't even understand. And in minutes, the demons are gone. See, what the story shows us is that God can defeat things even the Romans can't defeat. Rome, with all its legions and legions and legions, can't stop this one guy in Jesus. After finding out that it's a legion of demons, it's not even close the best Rome could do was try to tie him up. And it didn't work. But Jesus didn't even try. God has the power to defeat all other powers. And I wonder, you know, what about our demons? What about our demons? and our struggles, and the pain, and, and returning to that sin again, and again, and again, and feeling like the battle's just never quite won. Jesus has an answer to that question too. It's on that wall back there. It's the cross, where Jesus would go, and he would die in the powers of sin and darkness and evil and death, they would have their day and they would give everything they got to Jesus. Yet still, three days later, where's Jesus? Resurrected. See, Jesus defeats all of them. And he can defeat your demons too. My demons too. And there's a surprise here. Because Jesus' power, starting at the resurrection, is distributed to all of his followers. Each and every one of you has Jesus' power in you. We are the body of Christ. And we're here to follow Jesus and to practice the power of resurrection. Every single place we go, when there is brokenness in this world, we are to bring healing in the name of Jesus. 
When there's conflict in this world, we are to bring peace in the name of Jesus. When there is apathy in this world, we are to bring compassion in the name of Jesus. Jesus' power has been given to us as the body of Christ to walk out and bring his power and create peace in this world. It's why we're here. So what are we going to do with it, church? Let's pray. God, sometimes the world looks dark and gloomy and out of control, and it seems like you're just not present and your power maybe isn't enough. And God, we thank you for the reminders in Scripture of just how powerful you really are. You have the whole world in your hands. You really do. And God, we pray that as your power was demonstrated at the cross and at the resurrection, God, and then that power is somehow given to us as the body of Christ. God, we pray that you embolden us to use it, to bring your good news to the world. And God, we pray in our own personal lives, wherever we are, whatever demons we're battling, God, that your power just lights up our lives and the demons flee. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.